Hello, my name is Jennifer Murphy. I'm one of the core trainees from Derby Royal Hospital, and I'm here to talk to Daniel Couch. He's one of the surgical registrars from Leicester Royal Infirmary. Hi there. Hi, Daniel. So, as we said, we're going to talk about hernias today. And first of all, why are hernias important to learn about? Hernias are a common clinical problem. They represent a significant workload of the general surgeon, and they cause problems for the patient both in a symptomatic fashion and also can present as emergencies and have lots of complications and negative sequelae. Also, aside from the clinical significance of hernias, hernias are one of those topics that translate really well from clinical practice into exams, and so it tends to come up quite a lot in OSCEs and in written papers as well, and so that's partly why we're talking about it today. Okay, so let's define some learning objectives for today. First of all, we're going to talk about the definition of hernias, how to recognise a hernia, and possible treatment options. So first of all, talking about the definition of hernias, Daniel, what would you say is the definition of a hernia? Well... The textbook definition of what a hernia is, it's a protrusion of an organ through a wall which normally contains it. Though in lay terms you could describe this as a weakness in a wall with stuff bulging out of the weakness. Okay, so can you get hernias pretty much anywhere in the body? Well, you can get hernias anywhere in the body. You can get them in the brain, for example, but the most common site for hernias is the abdomen especially the groin. Can you give us some examples of abdominal hernias? Well, hernias can rise at the umbilicus in old scars. You can get diaphragmatic hernias and rare ones like obturators and what common ones called spagalian hernias, which are in the abdominal wall itself. Um, but the most common site for hernias in the abdomen by far is the groin, and that's what we're going to focus on today. When we talk about groin hernias, we're talking about inguinal hernias and femoral hernias. That's right, we can talk about those two, but wonder if you could define them for me before we move on. When we talk about groin hernias, we're referring to inguinal hernias in the inguinal canal and femoral hernias in the femoral canal. It might be quite good to just stop here for a second and just focus on the anatomy quickly and see if we can define the difference between an inguinal hernia and a femoral hernia. Any ideas? Well, an inguinal hernia, as we said, occurs in the inguinal canal. And the inguinal canal is defined as being between the internal ring at the mid-inguinal point, which is halfway between the pubic tubercle and the anterior superior iliac spine. And it runs to the external ring, which is uh, above and lateral to the pubic tubercle. Why do we have an inguinal canal? So we have an inguinal canal because it provides a, a route for the testes to descend in embryonic life. And I'm sure you can remember from your embryonic anatomy days that the testes initially start off in the retroperitoneum and descend forward towards the anterior abdominal wall and into the scrotal sac. So a common exam question is to be able to talk about the borders of the inguinal canal. Um, so posteriorly, it's made up of the transversalis fascia. The roof is made up predominantly of the external oblique and reinforced laterally by the internal oblique. The floor is made up of the rolled edge of the external oblique, which forms the inguinal ligaments. And the anterior wall is made up of the external oblique laterally. Okay. Well, how about the femoral canal? The femoral canal runs medially to the femoral vein in the medial aspect of the thigh. It's made up posteriorly of the pectineal ligament. Anteriorly, it's made up of the inguinal ligament. Medially, it's made up of the lacuna ligament and laterally consists of the femoral vein. Hmm. So it might just be worth mentioning at this point the difference between direct and indirect inguinal hernias. So a direct hernia occurs when the hernial contents bulges directly through the posterior wall of the inguinal canal. However, an indirect hernia occurs when the hernial contents bulge through the deep ring of the canal and traverse it, 
Clinically, it's impossible to distinguish between the two of these. And you can only tell the difference at operation because indirect hernias lie lateral to the inferior epigastric artery, whereas direct hernias lie medially. So let's move on now to talk about how hernias present. Okay. Well, hernias typically present as a lump in the groin. Um, This can sometimes give rise to a bit of discomfort and a patient will present to you saying that they've got a bulge. It may get worse when they cough or they strain. They may also give a history of a lump in the groin which goes away when they lie flat. It may be worse in the evening after a day of walking around. And they may say that over time it's got slowly larger. But the important point is that in the uncomplicated hernia it tends not to be tender. So they may be a bit uncomfortable on reduction. So you mentioned hernias being uncomplicated and complicated. What clinical signs might you look out for to distinguish between a complicated and uncomplicated hernia? Well, before we go on to talk about those things, let's take a step back and classify our hernias. Hernias can either be reducible, irreducible, obstructed or incarcerated, or strangulated. Okay, so by reducible we mean able to, on clinical examination return the contents of the hernia to the abdominal cavity. Yeah, that's it. So you've got someone coming in who's got a hernia, it causes them perhaps a bit of discomfort, but it's not painful. They can reduce it easily, it goes away, um, and it's just more of a nuisance for them than anything else. And this is what we call an uncomplicated or reducible hernia. And so by irreducible, we mean that we are unable to reduce the contents of the hernial sac to the abdominal cavity. Yeah. Um, And that's due to a, a narrow neck. Yeah, it can be due to a narrow neck. And by a neck, I mean the the point at which the abdominal wall has its weakness. That can be narrow, pre- preventing reduction of the her- contents of the hernia or sac. But also it can be because the contents of the hernia can be adherent to the sac. Right, um, okay. That's bulging out, and that's why sure. it won't go back in. And then we have obstructed, or as we sometimes say, incarcerated hernias. Yeah, this is the hernia where there's bowel inside the hernia, whether it be small bowel or large bowel. Um, and the bowel is obstructed, meaning that there's not the passage of the motion inside the colon is prevented by its passage through mm-hmm. into and out of the neck. But the bowel, importantly, is healthy, it's viable, um, sure. and it's not an ischemic or necrotic. I've heard people talk about strangulated hernias. What do we mean when we talk about strangulated hernias? Well, this is an important point. The difference between an obstructed hernia or a strangulated hernia is that we talked about obstructed hernias not allowing passage of motion through the bowel. Strangulated hernias are where the neck of the hernia is so small that the venous drainage of the bowel is compromised and you start getting red infarction. So things we really need to worry about are obstructed or strangulated hernias that may present as a general surgical emergency. That's right. Those two are true emergencies and need to be fixed as soon as possible. And then we've got these other two that we discussed at the beginning. The reducible hernia that's not painful, perhaps causes a bit of discomfort, can be fixed electively at some point in the next 18 weeks. An irreducible hernia may be demonstrating signs that it's going to maybe strangulate or obstruct or incarcerate in the next few weeks. And maybe you should think about repairing that sooner rather than later, as in in the next available elective list. Okay. And then we've mentioned obstructed or even strangulated hernias, which need to be fixed as an emergency. So just to summarise, uh, using those terms, what are important clinical features that we should look out for for example, in an obstructed or strangulated hernia. If you're faced with a patient who has a very tender or a non-reducible hernia with overlying skin changes, and that it goes a bit dusky or goes red, or if the patient is demonstrating clinical signs of bowel obstruction, as in vomiting and absolute constipation with colicky abdominal pain, you should think about repairing those as soon as possible.
So would it be fair to say that we fix the reducible hernias electively to prevent complications such as obstruction and strangulation further down the line? Historically, we used to repair an awful lot of hernias as an emergency because of incarceration or strangulation. Because we run quite a good elective programme now for repairing hernias and GPs are very hot and the idea of referring these to us early, we're seeing less of the complications. And for this reason, we should continue to fix these as early as possible because if we don't, they will pose a serious clinical problem further down the line. Sounds like a good SHA operation as well. Well, maybe. It depends on the nature of the operation and the skill of the SHA. I'm sure you'd be fine. <laughs> so, um, well, that being said, Jennifer... If you are going to go and repair this hernia as a day case elective procedure, before you put knife to skin, what, what are the important differential diagnoses that you should know about before? Whenever I'm thinking about differential diagnoses, I tend to think about all the anatomical structures in that particular area. So that's your structure? Yeah. Okay. Other people use a surgical sieve, but I tend to be more anatomy based in what I think. So things that are in the groin that could possibly give rise to pathology... So lymphadenopathy, uh, undescended testes, femoral artery aneurysm, uh, saphenovarix, um, abscess, and then you can also have subcutaneous pathology, so a lipoma or a sebaceous cyst. Hmm, and I yeah. think they're the main ones that can occur in the groin. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would echo that the most important ones to remember are lymphadenopathy and undescended testes, but all the things that you've mentioned are important differential diagnoses. Certainly, you definitely want to exclude a femoral artery aneurysm based on the history and the examination, because obviously if you put a knife in that, you'll be screaming for a vascular surgeon within a few seconds and wiping the blood off your face. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about how um, hernias might present and how you would recognise them. So assuming that you've got your diagnosis correct, how do you want to go on to manage uh, an inguinal hernia or a femoral hernia? Let's talk about inguinal hernias first. Sadly, there are no, no effective conservative measures for treating hernias. You'll see some elderly patients coming in wearing a truss in, the, in an attempt to prevent the hernia from getting worse, but it certainly won't treat it. They're not effective and the evidence doesn't support their use. And so, really, the only treatment for hernias is operative. As we mentioned earlier, we want to repair hernias early to, pre to prevent complications, especially femoral hernias, as these have a 40% risk of strangulation further down the line. Primary repair of inguinal hernias can be either open or laparoscopic and almost always these days involve a mesh. There are lots of described techniques for re repairing hernias and certainly in the UK the most common open technique is what's called the Liechtenstein repair which involves opening the inguinal canal, pushing the hernia back in and applying a mesh over the top which can either be absorbable or non-absorbable to allow for scar tissue to form to prevent the hernia from coming back further down the line. Okay, so one thing that's always confused me is how the mesh provides enough support um, against intra-abdominal pressure to prevent the hernia recurring. And it's the fibrosis around the mesh that then provides the force or the stability to keep the hernia in place. That's right. We historically thought that it was the strength of the mesh which provided the repair. Mm -hmm. But what we found now is that actually... It's the, you're quite right, it's the fibrosis around the mesh which provides the strength of the repair. And you can see this looking at the original meshes we used to use, which mm. are quite heavy, um, have now been replaced with more lightweight meshes, and they're increasingly more absorbable, such as the Vipro mesh. Mm. So a hernia is uh, quite weak in the immediate post-operative period. 
if you've done an adequate repair in the first couple of weeks after surgery, the hernia shouldn't come back, but full strength of the repair won't be exhibited until six weeks. So no heavy lifting for the first six weeks? What I tend to tell my patients is that in the first two weeks after surgery, they're going to have to take it really easy and undertake no heavy lifting at all, nothing more than a kettle of water. And in the following four weeks, lifting nothing heavier than a bucket of water, after which they can do as they please. And what about femoral hernias? How do we fix those? Well, again, femoral hernias can either be repaired in a laparoscopic fashion or an open fashion. There are several approaches to fixing femoral hernias, and lots have been described in the textbooks, and they've all been shown to have equal effectiveness, though individual surgeons will have their own preference. There's no clear evidence as to whether we should use a mesh or not in femoral hernias, though increasingly they're being used for their repair. So most hernias, as we've said, are fixed electively, and often as day-case procedures if the patient's fit and well enough. What are the potential complications of hernia repair that you need to warn the patient about before they have an operation? This is an important question. There are the constitutional risks of surgery, such as wound infection or bruising or bleeding, and you should always warn patients that things may not go to plan and in the end they may require further surgery as a result of a complication. In relevance to inguinal hernia repair, we should always warn our patients there's a risk that the hernia could come back. There are several studies quoting different recurrence rates for different techniques. And if you quote your patient a 1 in 50 chance of recurrence of the hernia within the next 10 years, you'll be in the right ballpark. You should also risk, uh, warn the patient that there's a risk of nerve damage during the procedure, which may result in numbness within the scrotum due to damage to the ilioinguinal nerves or the iliohypogastric nerves. Occasionally, this can give a rise to chronic pain within the mm-hmm. groin, which is neuropathic in origin and understandably very hard to treat. Mm-hmm. This pain can be permanent, mm-hmm. and some studies have quoted an incidence rate of up to 1 in 10. Mm. Pretty high, then. Pretty high, though some studies have quoted this as lower, but this is certainly something you should mention to patients. Mm-hmm. There is a risk of nerve damage arising to numbness or chronic pain, both of which are very difficult to treat. In the repair of recurrent um, recurrent inguinal hernias, you should warn patients about the risk of testicular atrophy resulting from damage to the testicular vein or artery. And with any procedure, I find it good practice to warn the patient about risk of death. Surgery is not without its risks and very occasionally patients will not do very well. And the incidence of death from hernia repair goes up with age, starting Mm -hmm. about 1% at the age of 60 and 3.2% at the age of 80. Okay, and I guess that goes up significantly if hernias are operated on in an emergency setting. That's right. Well, thank you, Daniel, for talking to us today about hernias. We've talked about the definition of hernias, how to recognise a hernia, and particularly paying attention to what constitutes the need for an emergency operation on a hernia. And we've talked about possible treatment options. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. See you again.